This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Today is Thursday, January 24th, and you are listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. On today's show, Lisa Fields is joining us to discuss the Hebrew Israelites. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today, and today my co-host is Caleb Lindgren, our theology editor. Hey there, Morgan. Good to be on. Hey, Caleb. How's it going? Pretty good. It was kind of crazy getting into work today. It's really snowy out there. It is really snowy out there. So Lisa Fields is joining us to discuss the Hebrew Israelites and urban apologetics and evangelism. And I'm wondering if you can just tell us a little bit more about Lisa. Yeah, so Lisa Fields is the founder and president of the Jude 3 Project, an apologetics ministry focused on the African-American community that's dedicated to um, making sure that African-Americans know what they believe and why they believe it. So we're super excited to have her on to talk about this. Hi, Lisa. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be with you. It's great to have you. Where are you calling us from? Jacksonville, Florida. Mm. So it's not it's not as uh, chilly as you're probably expecting. Probably not. What What's the temperature yeah. down there? 60 degrees. Sounds all right. Yeah, today <laughs> is actually not that cold. It's more just like treacherous. Yeah, it's slushy. Did you bike this morning, Morgan? Uh, yeah, I did bike. Oof. It was kind of a stupid decision, but I made it. (laughs) You made it. You're all right. You're like, I didn't. Yeah. And actually, everyone was going slow enough. It's more of an issue when everyone's going really fast and then you think you might die if you wipe out. But people were kind of chill. That's good. Yeah. People were being pretty careful as drivers. So. All right. Well, let's get into our discussion today. So videos from last Friday's March for Life and the Indigenous Peoples March have been the subject of intense debate. In footage from a clip filmed in front of the Lincoln Memorial on Friday, high school students, some wearing Make America Great Again hats, appeared to be in a face-off with a Native American elder. This footage went viral as many on social media condemned the boys' apparent actions. There were some people who thought that these boys were mocking this Native American elder. Shortly thereafter, a new video showed a group of half a dozen or so Hebrew Israelites, a group of men in this case with scarves tied around their heads, Um, who were berating and using insults that seemed to come out of the Old Testament to the same high schoolers and Native Americans at this event. And this went on for more than an hour. So there's been a lot that's been written and talked about, about what's being presented in these videos and whether or not some of these accusations are true or not. We are not going to be doing that podcast today, though. Instead, we want to talk about the Hebrew Israelites. Who are they and where does their name come from, among many other questions that Caleb and I have. So, Caleb, I would like to do a gut check and to just kind of get your sense of everything that I kind of talked about here. I know there's been a lot of heat around a lot of the stuff that we're talking about. Has that been what your personal reaction to all of this was? Uh, I, I came to it late. Uh, I think a lot of this stuff blew up over the weekend, um, and I was not watching social media over the weekend. And so when I got back into the office on Tuesday, because we took MLK Day off, uh, all of this sort of hit me in the face, um, and I was trying to figure out which way was up. 
because I, I didn't know the whole story and it was a sort of developing thing and then more lengthier videos with context and competing statements and lots of different things. Um, and more than anything, my initial reaction to the situation in general was just sort of like, boy, there's a sort of media circus, a feeding frenzy that happens whenever these go down. But it was interesting when I noticed the the lengthier clip with the Hebrew Israelites and I thought to myself, oh, you know what? I think I've seen guys like this before. And so then I immediately became curious and I'm glad we were talking about this because I wanted to know what their role in the whole thing was. There were news reports that were saying they were at the center of it or related to what was going on, um, but it was hard to tell from the videos and I'm not really sure what they were doing there in the first place. But yeah, my initial reaction was uh, disappointment and a little bit of disturbedness, I suppose. It seemed like nobody was really handling it very well. Sure. I, I think that the weirdest thing, I like you, also was off of social media this weekend, or at least off of Twitter, where I know a lot of this stuff was being talked about. And I guess I always knew that there was, I don't want to say like another side, but there were there was additional video footage when I finally kind of heard about the story. So um, it seems like the the story, whatever initially was, has changed now that there's been, um, maybe it's not been completely turned on its head, but it's it's changed to some significant degree. And so it's weird kind of being like, oh, well, they're, that's like the, only the story that I've known. And it's hard to get as heated in that same way, especially as Nathan Phillips, who was the Native American elder who was kind of like centered in this footage has been very kind of like calmly responding to things um, and seemingly trying to do some bridge building in this thing. And that's kind of been my foray into the story. I do think it's really interesting to kind of talk about these Hebrew Israelites whom um, you and I have kind of acquired and worked on some urban apologetics pieces in the past couple years. And um, the Hebrew Israelites have come up in those conversations. And so, yeah, this seemed like a really great way to kind of have that discussion about the Hebrew Israelites as they've kind of almost reached more of a mainstream presence this past week. So, Lisa, thank you again for joining us and for <laughs> handling all the questions that I know Caleb and I have for you. Um, <laughs> I hope I do a good job. I'm not like a expert, expert in Hebrew Israelites, but I, I know enough. <laughs> but you probably know more than almost any single person that's going to listen to the show. So just remember that. <laughs> um, yes. Maybe you can start with who are the Hebrew Israelites and, and what's up with this name that they refer to themselves as. So Hebrew Israelites is what I like to refer to as a black cult. And usually when people think of cults, they think of like Jim Jones and some extreme cult is like just a deviation from orthodoxy. So there is Islamic cults, there's Christian cults, anything that's a deviation from the orthodox beliefs of that religion. Um, and so Hebrew Israelites would be a cult that deviates from orthodox Christianity. They believe that African-Americans are the lost tribe of Israel, that we are the Israelites and like that those people who maybe have white skin that claim to be Jewish are, are fake. And so they derive that that history comes from um, two gentlemen, in particular, Frank Cherry, William Crowder in the late 19th century that had these visions they said they received from God. Um, Cherry was in Tennessee, and he believed that God gave him a vision that African-Americans were the true descendants of biblical Hebrews. Crowdy 
um, had a similar revelation and they both went on to kind of establish churches, uh, Cherry, the living God, the pillar of ground of truth for all nations in Chattanooga, Tennessee around 1886. And then William Crowdy founded the Church of God and the Saints of Christ Church in 1896 in Kansas. So it's this, these revelations that they claim to get from God, which it seems to be a common thread when you look at cults uh, and, and deviations from Orthodox Christianity, when you see like Mormons, it's always somebody getting some kind of angelic or special revelation that deviates from Orthodox Christianity. Were these two men working together at all or were they even aware of each other? No, they, they were, they were, um, they were not working together. Oh, that's interesting. And when when both of them opened up their churches, what was the response? So one thing that one historian noted is that early Crowdy followers were actually white and not black, um, even though he preached that uh, black people were the, the lost tribe of Israel. So that's an interesting note. But I think that one of the things that I think made reception to their to their message easier is because there's. Black people in general are connected to the slave narrative of the children of Israel um, just by us being enslaved in America. And so I think it was easy to make that connection for people. So you think about the Israelites coming out of slavery and Moses leading them out of Egypt. And so if you kind of are thinking like that and then somebody says, like, this is just not a metaphor. You are literally Israel. It's easy for people to make that connection. So I I don't think it was like, oh, everybody's going to follow the Hebrew Israelites now. But I do think they they had some inroads and some following. Are the roots of it primarily Christian or primarily Jewish? I think it's more Jewish. It depends on the group. So in Hebrew Israelites, they have different sects. So there's not each group camp, they call it, kind of affirm different things. So one will set will deny the deity of Jesus. So they want to stick rigorously to the law and say, we follow the laws of uh, the Torah. Um, other groups may, may say we affirm Jesus. So it just depends. Mostly it's primarily following Judaism um, and not necessarily Christianity, but some of them do kind of deviate. So it may be a, maybe a better aspect would be maybe a Jewish cult and not a Christian cult. You mentioned that both of these um, different churches started because of dreams that their founders had. I'm curious, though, did they then go to scripture and then find a verse or two that they felt made their case as well? Yeah. So Hebrew Israelites, actually, one of their core verses is Deuteronomy 28, 68. And that verse says, and the Lord shall bring thee into Egypt again with ships by the way whereof I spake unto thee, thou shalt see it no more again. And there ye shall be sold unto your enemies for bondsmen and bondswomen, and no one shall buy you. And so this is their primary text. Oh, there's a guy uh, that used to work um, alongside my grandmother in a, a salon, and he converted to Hebrew Israelites. And he told my grandmother, look in Deuteronomy 28, and all the answers will be there. And <laughs> she kind of didn't know what he was talking about, but he was talking about this verse, uh, Deuteronomy 28, 68, that I just read. And so there's a couple things 
in this verse to me that I always kind of push back on is like, why is Egypt in this passage translated America? (laughs) Because essentially it's saying that we should go, we're, we're going back. So essentially, okay, if you're saying that we are true Israel, then why is Egypt in one space literal and then metaphoric in the next? Um, Because we have to, we're not going, America is not Egypt. So it becomes literal in one sense and a metaphor in a second. So that's one question kind of that I push back. I mean, mean, if Egypt is America, when were Africans, African-Americans here before the transatlantic slave trade? So those are kind of things that I, I think about when I'm, when I'm engaging them on this verse, but that is kind of one of the core verses they point to, like we were on ships. And so ships in the transatlantic slave trade comes into play. And I think some of the things that we should think about when we are thinking through, like engaging them is that the fact that most of these, uh, when I, when we talk about black cults are kind of honing in on the identity factor and because white Christians did use Christianity as a tool of oppression during that time, it is easy to kind of jettison anything that looks like Christianity because it is synonymous in a lot of people's, a lot of black people's minds with oppression. Um, and so that's one of the ways in which in this day there's seen a resurgence of them because it's like, okay, this is something that affirms our identity when white Christians have systemically oppressed us. And this is something that kind of shows that we have superiority. And in the words of my friend, Sho Baraka, it's, it's a tool to fight superiority with superiority. So white supremacy then counters with kind of a form of black supremacy. So it's interesting that on when they intersected in D.C., it is like extreme when you see the when, when most black people see a MAGA hat, they think of white superiority. And then when you see a Hebrew Israelite, you might think of black superiority. And then you have the other aspect that came in with the indigenous people. Yeah, there was a whole sort of potpourri of a lot of racially and politically charged ideologies happening in that video, which made it very intense in a lot of different ways, which was one of the things that was striking about it. I think it's one of the reasons why it was newsworthy, even though it looks like, based on everything I can tell, there no violence occurred. It was just a sort of standoff, which I guess is some level of encouragement, but still it's concerning that that sort of thing happens as frequently as it does. I wanted to zero in on that Bible aspect real quickly because I ran into, I think, a, a group of these, um, these it seems like they're always men whenever they're out there on the street corners. There's a group of these guys in Denver when I was there for a conference in November. And I was impressed by the amount of scripture that they were using during their street corner preaching. I totally disagreed with their interpretation at almost every point, but boy, they knew their scriptures. But it seemed like also primarily from the Old Testament, given that you were talking about that sort of Jewish angle of it. So I was wondering if you could speak to that as Christians, um, regardless of like kind of what kind of background we're coming from, what do we need to be prepared for? How do we best engage when we run into folks like this on the streets? And in particular, when they have scripture in their back pocket like that, it can be kind of challenging to a Christian who um, also knows their Bible and recognizes somebody else using the Bible, but using it in a way they're not used to. I encourage people not to engage them on the street when they're in kind of in a row because they're usually lined up right next to each other and they have a reader. Yeah. Usually. Uh huh. And there's one person speaking. 
Yeah, that was my experience. Yeah, they're not usually going, you're not going to usually get any headway because they're going to be very insulting, very loud. And then no matter what scripture you present, they're going to counter it with something else. And so they're a lot of times in the engagement, they're going here, there and everywhere. So you could you could challenge them on Deuteronomy and then they're going to go to another scripture. So they never necessarily deal with the context of that scripture and where it's placed in scripture. So it's kind of like just bouncing around to different verses without ever dealing with the context. I find the most effective way to engage is one on one, because you got to think in a crowd of people, if you even if you're making some headway or even if they're listening, if if one person is listening to you, the group is going to kind of feed them. So they're not going to kind of show that you're breaking through at any point. It's kind of like the stronger in numbers dynamic. So one of the best ways I think to engage is on a a one-on-one level. If you can, through relationships, have a relationship with the person. But usually, especially if you're a woman, they don't have a lot of respect for for women. And so I've seen this a lot. We do um, a historically black college and university tour for is called as Christian white men's religion. And so we go to do these different um, HBCUs. And usually at the one in um, we have one at Southern in University of Baton Rouge and a group of Hebrew Israelites drove from South Carolina wow. to our event in Louisiana. Wow. Like, seriously, they, oh, <laughs> I get messages from them, like, literally all the time. Like, my email is full of messages from them. Wow. So they, they follow our organization, so they know where we're going to be at. So they literally, out at almost every tour stop, somebody comes. And so it's very difficult sometimes for them to engage with me because I lead the organization and I'm a woman. And so when they get up during Q&A. Oh, gosh. They sometimes get hostile, like we have to have somebody holding the mic or, you know, have kind of security to say, hey, you're going to have to sit down after your one question. But it's very difficult for me when I tell them to, like, sit down. That's enough. That's your one question. It's very difficult. You can see, like, like their blood boiling because it's like I'm a woman telling them to sit down. So in that aspect, if you're a woman trying to trying to engage them on the street, it's not going to go well for you. And for white folks, it doesn't it doesn't go well either because they'll use derogatory language. So I'm, I imagine how that conversation went uh, when that when they were there um, yeah. between those two extreme groups. Yeah. My experience in Denver was similar. I didn't engage them at all. I was on public transportation and we, we just had an extended stop and the doors to the tram were open and I was just like looking at them and they were looking at me and saying all sorts of stuff. And I was like, boy, I'm not getting, I'm, I, I thought about it. Cause I was like, oh, they've got a Bible. Like I could talk about the Bible. I know a lot about the Bible, but then the more it went on, I'm glad I didn't say anything. I was this close, but it sounds like that would have been a mistake based on what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, they usually refer to, uh, to, uh, white people as, Gentiles, uh, Edomites, Esau. So it, it's it's going to be hard to interact when they already have a negative connotation. And to them, Christianity is the white man's religion. I think one of the best ways to, to interact when I see pastors say they've had young people leave because of this is to say, hey, let's be proactive. Let's talk about the injustices that have happened at the hands of just majority culture in America. Let's talk about 
the roots of Christianity and how African church fathers like Tertullian, and Athanasius, Augustine were very instrumental in the formation. I mean, African like Tertullian formed the word Trinity. So Orthodox Christian beliefs came from Africa. And so equip people with those tools. So then when people come and say, hey, this is a white man's religion, you could push them back further in history. Hey, look at the formation of it, of Christian doctrine and how Africa played a huge part in that. But then be honest about how it was misused in slavery and and slaveholders used passages like slaves submit to your masters to further oppress Africans. So I always like to compare it to like a hammer. A hammer can be helpful or hurtful depending on whose hand it's in. And that's the same way with scripture. Depending on who is using it, (laughs) it can be helpful or it can be hurtful. Uh, A hammer can use to build something, build homes, build magnificent things, but it can also uh, be destructive in the wrong hands. And that's how Christianity has been. It's been helpful in some aspects. It's been hurtful. It all depends on who was using it and what agenda they had behind it. Are you allowed to be a woman and be part of the Hebrew Israelites? Yes, you're allowed to be in it, but it's kind of like a male-dominated faith. So the preaching is reserved for the men. And I don't know if you've ever been to one of their services, but what do you know about kind of how they practice and what piety looks like to them? They usually hold uh, to the King James Version of the Bible because they believe that King James was Black. Um, Can you talk about that? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I I don't know why they uh, essentially it's like a conspiracy theory that King James was black. Uh, that's that's the only thing I know. Wow. I think it gets really sticky <laughs> about how they they get to that. Okay. Some only hold to the Old Testament. Um, most of them hold to the Apocrypha as well. So Old Testament and Apocrypha. What about New Testament? It it depends on the camp. So. Certain physical appearance is important, like fringes and beards. You'll see that Hebrew Israelites believe in Jesus Christ was a black man, and they refer to him as Yeshua. They believe that righteousness is achieved through law keeping, strict Sabbath keeping, dietary restrictions. So they eat kosher? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's kind of a lot of their practice is kind of like law keeping some of them believe both heaven and hell are conditions, mere states of mind, metaphysical realities, not like Orthodox Christians would kind of affirm. And so they refer to God as Yah and not. It depends on the individual camp, though, what kind of reference and how they refer to God. But most of them is Yah. And so they believe that, like, for African-Americans, they need to wake us up if if we're not aware of our true identity. So they'll usually when they come to our events um, and in the Q&A, they'll be like, I just need you to be aware that you're a Hebrew. And it's like, I'm asleep and they're woke in the sense um, to their identity. And so what we always kind of engage with is that, you know, it, let's, we'll grant you, you know, we, we don't affirm this, but just if we, if, if you're right, well, that Hebrews, we are the original Hebrews. What does that have to do with salvation? Like you still have to be born again, whether you're Jew or Gentile, we believe that you still have to be born again and repent of your sins. So even if we're we're Jewish, then Jesus talks about the Gentiles being grafted in. Sometimes we won't even argue 
in our engagement about identity. Because at the end of the day, you still have to be born again. I'm curious, you gave us this history of these churches starting at the end of the 19th century. But clearly these churches, you know, what they were teaching didn't just kind of die out when their pastors ended up dying. How did this religion or sect, I guess you said earlier, how did the sect spread? Uh, they do preaching. I believe it's Crowdy kind of did kind of these evangelist tours uh, where he went around preaching this message. So they kind of laid the foundation of the movement and spread it. Um, a group called the Black Hebrews of America in 1930 um, even tried to establish a settlement in Ethiopia. So they've they've been consistent in kind of spreading the message those who 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 believed it. But I think just it just, it depends on the cultural climate and which it kind of kind of gets wings in a sense <laughs> and, and people start to to follow behind it. I think in our day and culture where where we are very, very divided amongst all t- racial, political lines and such, it's easy for groups like this on any side of extreme, whether it's white supremacists or black cults, to gain traction because it feeds on extremes. But it also, for Black cults, I think it's an identity at the core. Uh, We were talking to, when we were interacting with the guy at Southern who drove from South Carolina, one of the things he said after they got done, like going back and forth, and it was like kind of, they were trying to get heated with us. One of the things, what one of the guys said, he almost broke down in tears and said, can you explain to me why Black folks are experiencing this suffering? And for him, to be in this group explains suffering. Okay, we are God's chosen people. We're suffering because we we did some kind of disobedience. So it, it's all wrapped up in suffering and the problem of evil. And so this gives them a uh, a reason for suffering. It gives them affirmation and identity, and it gives. And also a way that this will all be made right in the sense that they will come and overthrow those who have been oppressive. And so at the at, when we think about like any of black cults like Amoras or Nation of Islam, it all at the core is about identity, suffering and making right these wrongs that have committed been committed against minorities. And as a minority myself, we're all looking for justice. We're all looking for um, things to be made right. But that doesn't, in the words of my friend Shobaraka, we don't fight superiority with superiority. And so I think, you know, their cries are valid and sometimes they're extreme in the ways that they present themselves gets them turned turned off by the multitude. But at the end of the day, just like that guy, he was just like, I'm just trying to figure out why we have suffered and when is this going to be made right? And so I think that's at the core of the cries. And sometimes it gets masked by the loudness. But if we could look beyond that and have those one-on-one conversations and really minister to that that need, I think we'll, we'll see more breakthrough in engagement. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of 
Nine Lives and County, A Bounty Hunter's Journey to Faith, Hope, and Redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. I want to circle back to the Moorish Temple Science and the Nation of Islam in a minute, but before that, I wanted to make a quick pop culture connection. In Kendrick Lamar's album damn he makes a lot of references that a lot of christians i knew both black and white took to be like oh he's like you know he's referencing the bible he's like one of us and then when this stuff went down here in dc uh, a lot of people were making connections like oh actually he was referencing this hebrew israelite movement Um, and i wondered if you could speak to that real quickly yeah so i don't know if he is fully fledged in the movement i know his cousin is like one of the leaders and he refers to his cousin in in one on his album but he is referring to Hebrew Israelite and in fact when his album came out there was a lot of articles in response to it about what Hebrew Israelite theology is what they believe and all that so he actually does he is kind of affirming like we're the true Israel we're the lost tribes of Israel. And so, but I don't think he's bought in full-fledged to the whole, all of their belief systems. Um, I think he's kind of dabbling in it, and which is a lot of times the case. When we meet people who are in these groups, they are what I call hybrids. So it's kind of like hard to pin them down because they don't have a, a systematic set of beliefs. It's like they're Kind of, they've bought into some of Hebrew Israelites. They've bought in some of the nation of Islam. They bought in some of Moors. The syncretism is kind of most prevalent in their lives. So I think when you talk to a lot of celebrities that kind of are buying in, because he's not the only one. There's a, a few of athletes and and rappers who kind of affirm this. They're more kind of buying into syncretism and not one set of beliefs. You also made it sound earlier too, Lisa, that there's a decent amount of kind of infighting within the Hebrew Israelite movement. Yeah, there's different camps. So like uh, that's one of the reasons we get a lot of emails a lot of times because we'll post an article about ways to engage Hebrew Israelites. And then a group from another camp will be like, you said this this is not true. Well, (laughs) it might not be true for your group, but it is true for another. So it's kind of hard to set up like a system of rebuttals Mm -hmm. because it's like, you don't you never know which group you're engaging with. I mean, it's kind of like Christian denominations. Mm-hmm. Like if you were to engage a Presbyterian or engage a Baptist and mm-hmm. talk about baptism and you would make a kind of a defense for, for baptism and make these generalizations, it might be true for Baptists, might not be true for Presbyterians. I, I'm curious as well if you can just speak a little bit about the way that YouTube and social media informs their ability to get out their message and also the ways that you've done apologetics and evangelism on those platforms as well. So that's one of the ways that they're spreading social media engagement. They do these hour long um, seminars, not just one hour, hour long kind of seminars and webinars um, where they talk about, you know, their beliefs 
how it's different from Christianity, the white man's religion. They give a lot of pseudo scholarship. So one of the ways that if you do engage them online, we always ask, like, where did you get that from? Like, what is the source of that? Or do you, is it like a Wikipedia page? Is it, is it another YouTube video? Is it a meme? Like, let's let's deal with like real sources, because uh, even when you look at their like 12 tribes chart, uh, which is Judas, American Blacks, Benjamin, West Indian Blacks, Levi's, Haitian, Ephraim is Puerto Rican, Manassas, Cuban, Simeon is Dominicans. Zebulon is Guatemalan and Tepanama Mayans and Gad is Native Americans. Wow. Native American Indians. Reuben is Seminole. Asher is Columbia to Uruguay. Issachar is Mexican. Um, Napatali is Argentinian and Chile. So these are the lost tribes. Wow, they got it all worked out. Yeah. But if you like try to nail down where they get this chart from it gets a little sticky uh we still don't we still don't know uh but so they would be like you're i'm i'm a part of judah because i'm american black so it's important to ask like what are your sources um and i think one of the things is the challenge and the things that i try to tell pastors is like a lot of times because the things are so kind of far-fetched a lot of pastors and scholars don't take it seriously Cause it's like, who's going to believe that? Like, you know, (laughs) but then there's people, there are people who are searching for identity and maybe have, have like, when you start to put things together, like, okay, you know, let's look at the history of Christianity in America. Okay. That's very problematic. Like there's a lot of problems there. And if I don't really take seriously that, but they're taking seriously that, and they're, they're not lying about that. They're speaking truth. But then they make a a connection like, okay, now look at this or look at the fact that there are some black Hebrews. And so it's like, oh, yeah, that's true. And I'm like, yeah, we can affirm there are some black Hebrews because of the diaspora. But that doesn't mean that all black people are Hebrews. Like one doesn't mean the other. And so it's like they mix a little bit of truth in there and they get people in and then they take seriously the questions that pastors may not be taking seriously or thinking about the history of Christianity. And they mix that. And then if you're thinking about the cultural climate and you think about um, evangelicals uh, supporting the president and this whole aspect of make America great again, and black people are saying, when was it great for us? Like you, (laughs) you can easily get sucked in. And so, that's kind of just how they kind of draw people in with their message and they use social media to do it. And it's, it's, it's been quite effective in their engagement. And so the, one of the ways we, we use social media is kind of like saying, Hey, let's take the messages that they're giving and let's talk about them. Let's talk about the good, bad and the ugly about Christianity, but let's also on their claims about Deuteronomy 28, let's bring in a black scholar. That's the old Testament professor that can speak to that verse and say, what is really saying in context, but it's coming from a black scholar to kind of interact with that. And so that's one of the strategic ways we're doing. We're providing scholarship by black scholars putting it on the platforms that are easily accessible. And then we're talking about the good, bad, and the ugly about Christianity and how Africans have been pivotal in the formation of Christian doctrine. I wanted to circle back to the Moorish Temple Science and Nation of Islam because I think those are all different types of 
urban, I guess, cults as you're calling them, and uh, you encounter them with some frequency. In my mind, they all kind of get lumped into the same sort of like category, but it sounds like there are some distinctions. And I wondered if you could help us just make a couple of those distinctions real basically so that we can kind of differentiate the different movements and and where they all kind of fit and like their maybe their relative popularity as well. One of the the major distinctions when we talk about Moors and Nation of Islam is they're going to be an offshoot from Islam. So Moore's Science Temple of America was established by Timothy Drew. Um, it began under two different names in 1913, 1928. Um, and Drew um, took upon himself a name of Noble Jerob Ali, and he believed that he was a prophet of Allah. And so um, my friend D.A. Uh, Horton writes, uh, the overall goal of Moore's Science Temple in America is to see divine salvation brought to their people. It suggests that Moorish Americans are returning to Islam, which is founded by our forefathers for our earthly and divine salvation. So it's this claim that Islam is the original faith of black folks, which is we kind of engage that on our HBCU tour when we talk about the fact that Christianity was in Africa before Islam was in Christian it was in Africa. Um and that Christianity came through uh peacefully, um, but Islam came through the sword. So Christianity was there before Islam was there. So to say Islam was kind of the original faith of Africans is not consistent with history. That's kind of one of the things that we try to to point to. So all of these different groups that we've talked about so far are offshoots of different major, uh, the kind of big three monotheistic religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Um, and they're also fairly male dominated, but I recently ran across an article, I think it was either in the New Yorker or the Atlantic that was talking about black witchcraft, which seems to be primarily female driven. Um, could you speak to that at all? It's funny. I just had, um, lunch with uh, a girl who came out of that and converted to Christianity last year. But I think that's the African spirituality kind of thing is growing. Uh, because people are really trying to get back to what was our faith before we came here. Um, what 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 did people believe? If 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 we were brought here, our identity was stolen. We need to get back to our original identity. So let's look at practices in West Africa and what they believed and um, kind of their spirituality. And so. I, that kind of has drawn people to 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 those uh, religions or practices of spirituality because people don't like the term religion; it's more spirituality, um, and so that is that is growing. Essentially, it goes back to the point that all of these have in common. Like, if this is the Christianity, Christ, we I always start with this at this kind of thesis: American Christianity is a white man's religion in a sense. Christianity of the Bible is what we're we're striving to get to. So you can reject American Christianity and not reject Jesus. Um, but because in so many people's minds, it's so intertwined, um, it's kind of like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And so what we're trying to get folks to see is like, you don't have to do that. You can reject American Christianity without rejecting biblical Christianity. 
That's pretty consistent with my experience growing up on the West Coast and the Northwest. A lot of people wanted to be spiritual but not be religious because they were seeking a way to connect with transcendent ideas, things that are larger than their immediate lived experience that gives them a sense of purpose and identity like you were talking about. But they're, they're wanting to distance themselves from the really awful things that a lot of the major religions have been a part of. So they're looking for these sort of like marginal ways to connect with spiritual ideas that can avoid some of the nastier parts of that. Lisa, how how equipped would you say the black church has been to kind of take on all these people who are coming with their questions um, or are really, yeah, trying to to ponder if Christianity is something that they want to keep believing in? I think when it comes to cults, I think because there's not like books written on these cults in the sense of like, you could go to uh, Kingdom of Cults. There's that's a book. They may have Nation of Islam in it, but they don't have like Hebrew Israelites and Moors in them. So there's not a lot of published resource that's credible to refute them. So when people hear about them, when pastors hear, they're often kind of thrown off, and they're like, "Hold on, where are these questions coming from?" And then they're like, "Okay, I have to get answers, but I got to figure out." what in the world you're talking about first. Um, And so because of that, what the cult will play on is like, oh, your pastor doesn't know enough or he's not, he's not educated or he doesn't, he hasn't studied enough to know the truth. And so that's why you need to follow me because I studied all this stuff and I can quote it. Like you mentioned them quoting scripture. They could quote it super fast. They know history, they mix some accurate history with some pseudo scholarship, mix it together, and they're very confident. So I mean <laughs> everybody knows the way you present information kind of alludes to whether you know it or not. If you're super confident sharing it, people are more prone to believe you, even if it's a lie, even if it's something bizarre. But if you're confident saying it, you're more believable. And so because of that and the winsome nature sometimes that they have, they're able to to push people in their direction. And so pastors just, I think they're starting to be awakened now to the fact that like, this is really a thing that I need to look to. There was a pastor in um, Tallahassee told me that he lost half of his church to Hebrew Israelites because one of his elders became one and took half of the church with him. When people are seeing the effects of it, they're like, okay. And it's not just young people, it's some older people. A pastor told me, that his wife's aunt, who's in her mid fifties, has become a Hebrew Israelite, and she grew up a Christian. Her like <laughs> she's been in the faith her whole life, and so it's not just affecting young people; it's something that's crossing generations. And I think that's just because our cultural climate, and we have to realize the systemic things that Christianity as a whole have done, and then how that connects with before in Africa and kind of just be honest about the good, bad, and the ugly about Christianity, and then show people that, hey, Black people very much have a part to play in it. For people like Caleb and I who, you know, work for a majority culture Christian organization, and we may be part of, or for our listeners who may be part of predominantly white congregations, or for anyone who is in that majority culture space, what type of challenge do you have for us, given that we may not be directly interfacing um, we with Hebrew Israelites, but as you've alluded to multiple times, the actions and decisions that we're making at this level can have trickle-down effects? The advice I would give is just 
to to talk about Christian history. Um, I think when as an apologetics organization, oftentimes when you think of apologetics, you think of philosophy. And so we really do a lot of our apologetics with church history. And so I think white evangelical churches or just white Christian churches, if they talk about like early early African Christianity, talk about ways in which white Christians in America have been complicit in, in oppression, systemic racism and injustice. I think talking about those things and being prepared to engage people will help and to prepare their flock to know like what is the reason that this can thrive? Like why is this gaining traction? And am I part of the problem? Does my overemphasis when I, I, I went to seminary at a predominantly white seminary and so when you think when they talk about early church fathers, they're kind of talking about they make them seem like they're they're white. They don't talk about where they're from. It might be, oh, like, oh, Athanasius is from Africa. But they don't talk about the fact that he's labeled the black dwarf. So, you know, so subconsciously you begin to see all your hero, all the Christian heroes as white. Even if you Google them, their picture comes up as white. So that's problematic. Um, then you see why people say, oh, a white Jesus, because when you see pictures of Jesus, he's white. So reshaping history and not telling revisionist history, but telling history as it happened for predominantly culture churches is big because it helps them see these things play a part in why these cults can thrive. That's great. And as the editor who's responsible for our history section, that's encouraging to me and also a challenge to me. So thanks for saying that. Last question from me. I just wanted to know if there's somebody, a uh, pastor who's listening to this, who's like, boy, I could really use some resources um, because, you know, I've got some folks that are really interested in this or who have, I've lost members to Hebrew Israelites. Like, what do, where do I go? I don't want to reinvent the wheel. What would you say to them? I'd say there's a book by Vocab Malone it's called Barack Obama versus Hebrew Israelites. Um, it has nothing to do with the president, but it, it does. <laughs> he uses that because and in, in, there's a movie on Netflix about Barack Obama in which he's engaging the Hebrew Israelite on the street. Um, and they have like a heated back and forth discussion. So he kind of uses that just as an offshoot to talk about Hebrew Israelites and how they engage people. But he's probably done the most work on it so that his book is Barack Obama versus Hebrew Israelites. Jamar Tisby, a friend of mine, has a book, The Color of Compromise, that talks about just the American Christianity and how it's been problematic. Carl Ellis has a book, Free at Last, that kind of dabbles into it. And um, Chris Brooks has a book called Urban Apologetics. That's helpful. Thank you, Lisa. All right. Well, I think everyone who's in the studio learned a bunch of new things today. And hopefully to all our listeners, you did too. If you have some feedback, you can send us an email. or at podcast at christianitytoday.com. You can also tweet us. We're at CT Podcasts. So those are your ways to get your message heard. And we really appreciate all the comments and feedback that we get from folks. Now is the time of the show where we ask you to give us money. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I do want to remind everyone this podcast is made possible by everyone who does subscribe to Christianity Today magazine. And Caleb is actually someone who works a lot on the print issue. And I asked him if he thought there was anything in the January, February issue that we came out with that he thought was particularly interesting 
Caleb, was there a piece? I know you were actually having trouble picking because... Yeah. Well, the first thing I would say is that our January-February issue is good all the way through. And I know that I'm supposed to say that as an editor for CT, but I like I really, really mean it this time. Uh, we've got our book awards, which are always um, really interesting and filled with lots of good stuff to put on your reading list. I personally worked on a couple of the pieces that are feature pieces that I think are really good. One about church's family, another one about whether it's okay to be angry with God. Um, but the piece that I want to highlight is actually related to what we've been talking about. So we've been talking about these sort of like particular cults and the different like types of um, cults that we see in urban contexts um, and in African-American contexts. And then there's also quite a bit of diversity within African-American Christianity, which doesn't always get recognized, particularly in sociology. And there's a couple of researchers, in particular a guy named Jason Shelton, who's doing a lot um, to try to help um, create better categories for sociologists to understand how African-American Christianity and African-American Christians are very diverse in the way that they are different from white Christians and how worship styles and approaches to the Bible differ and what that looks like. So the article uh, is called Who Counts? Inside the Academy's Battle to Rightly Divide American Christianity. And it's by one of our editors here, Ted Olson. And it's really good. It's specifically looking at a topic called Black Reltrad. And Reltrad is like this way of it's sort of like a family tree of religious tradition that so far has mostly just been applied to white religious traditions. And Jason Shelton um, is trying to better understand black Christianity by developing a similar system. Cool. So if you'd like to read that article, it is part of our January, February content, our print magazine content. You can do that by becoming a subscriber at orderct.com slash quick to listen. That's orderct.com slash quick to listen. The article is online and in print, but in order to read it, you will have to become a subscriber. All right. So we are going to move into Precious Moments, which is when everyone gets to share something that has brought them joy in the last week or so. Caleb, you want to go? I got one. So uh, I am a big fan of this band called Snarky Puppy. It's a weird name for a band. They're kind of a weird band, but they just came out with a new single and their new album is coming and I'm very excited about it. The new single is great. It's a little bit of an acquired taste for listeners who are curious. Go check them out. I think it's worth it, but it's jazz fusion, which may not be your deal. But the best way I could describe it is it's like jazz influenced pop with a lot of influences from hip hop, Latin music, just a whole bunch. Um, and it's, it's instrumental. And There's something for everyone there. It's awesome. I love it. Have you ever seen them perform? I have. I've seen them four, five times. I've seen them a lot. They're really they're a live band primarily. They're sort of like a jam band, and um, watching them make music live is so exciting and fun because it's like watching it's like watching a like a master chef cook in front of you. It's just like wow, creation right here. All right. So Caleb, are you available via social media? If people I am. Tweet um, at you moderately. Uh, you can tweet at me or follow me at C Adams Lindgren, L-I-N-D-G-R-E-N on Twitter. Um, I tweet very occasionally, so don't hold your breath, but I do sometimes. You also work on putting a newsletter together too. For yeah. Me. So um, I am in charge of the Christian history section of our website in addition to my responsibilities as theology editor. And there is a Twitter account you can follow um, at Christian history. It's spelled without an I in the first Christian because there's not enough space. But you'll find it if you just search Christian History on Twitter. And then there's also a newsletter that you can follow, which gives you the big um, hits from what happened on this day in Christian history. Cool. 
All right, Lisa, are you ready? Yes. Go ahead. So uh, what brought me joy this week uh, was I'm a foodie. So <laughs> I went to um, Old Lady Gang in Atlanta to try a new restaurant, and it was amazing. had amazing. All right, uh, what'd you eat? Tell us what you ate. So for the appetizer, I had uh, the shrimp and grits. They so they had like a miniature version of shrimp and grits. I'm a shrimp and grits fan. Uh, then for the main dish, I had fried chicken, mac and cheese, and green beans. And then for dessert, I had their bread pudding peach cobbler. I want all of that. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it was Lunchtime so amazing. I didn't get to hungry. eat all of it, but no. it was good. To, and they had some amazing cornbread. So if you're in Atlanta, go to Old Lady Gang because it was amazing to me. Yeah. That's what brought me joy this week. Um, <laughs> bread pudding peach cobbler. Wow. Yes. Yeah. That to me, that stood out because I've never, I like bread pudding and like peach cobbler, but I never had them together. And that was amazing. My goodness. All right. Lisa, do you have some places on social media or the internet that you want to point listeners to? Yes. Uh, Jude3project.com. Jude, that's like the Bible book, the number three project.com. It has all our social media handles, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can follow me personally on Twitter, Instagram at Lisa V Fields. Lisa V is in violin, Fields, F-I-E-L-D-S. All right. I know that earlier we were kind of ragging on the weather, but I don't really like to rag on the weather because I think weather, at least in its more extremes, is actually fun. I'm like not a fan of like 40 degrees in Chicago, at least maybe in California where I grew up, but not in Chicago. So on Sunday, my friend and I tried to go sledding. It was not very successful because all we had was a Rubbermaid lid, which actually cannot work up that much speed when you're trying to go down a hill, which also the hills in Chicago are kind of non-existent. Yeah, I was going to say, what hill? I know. Incline. We were doing it on an incline. But at one point, we, we borrowed someone's, stole someone's, I don't know. Used while they were not using someone's, like, saucer, which those things, you really fly. It really put it in comparison, <laughs> how much you could move. And then on Monday, when we got the day off, I went on this, like, seven-mile snow hike, which, even though it was really cold, I think it was, like, I don't know, 10 or 11. One, my hand, my friend brought hand warmers, which was oh, yeah. a huge difference maker. And two, it was sunny and gorgeous the whole time. And you just also kind of, like, work up a lot of energy walking in the snow. Mm-hmm. It's also quiet in a different way. Because, mm-hmm. like, the snow muffles the sound, but you get the crunch. So Absolutely. It was so great. I was so happy with that day off. People that want to follow me can do so at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is my Twitter handle. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself, Trey Allred, and Richard Clark. You can support the show by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also do so by ordering this magazine. So doing that at orderct.com slash quick to listen. Thank you, everyone, who has subscribed. Thank you, everyone, who's rated and reviewed the show We truly appreciate you guys doing all of this. The music here is done by Sweeps, and we will see you all next week. This episode was brought to you in part by the Enneagram and Marriage Podcast an outreach dedicated to bringing joy, strength, intimacy, and purpose to couples seeking growth. Be sure to visit enneagramandmarriage.com to find your chemistry together again, or for the very first time.